0: We are in the middle of our series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we've spent literally months underground. Our graphic was more dirt than sky. We were focusing on the root system. We were listening to the Apostle Paul lay this deep foundation for who you are in Christ, If you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, this is what God has done in your life. This is your new identity. And now, for the rest of the letter, Paul is going to be very specific. He's going to get down the brass tacks, as they say. And what he's unpacking is this simple message. Now, live in light of your new self, your new identity in Jesus Christ. Let's read back to... Verse 22 again, and then we'll jump down to the focus of our, uh, this, uh, this morning in verse 28. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord... Bring benefit to us who listen to your voice speaking through your word, through your chosen instrument, Paul himself, across time and space. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First heading to help us walk through this text is Do-Gooders. I'll explain. When I started thinking about which verses to bite off for this morning's text, I didn't want to simply treat verse 28, don't steal, do something useful. But when I looked at verse 29, it seemed like it was a completely different topic. Watch your mouth. Then I realized there's a link between these two verses. They have something in common that um, makes these two sets of instructions Um, just about a similar theme, and what they have in common is that in the original language of the New Testament, Greek, each verse has the same two words that show up, and they're very simply good and need. We see the word need in our English Bibles in verse 28 and in verse 29, but we don't see the word good, and that shouldn't surprise us because that's what happens in good translations. Think about the idea of good in English. We express it in very different ways depending on the context um, of the circumstance. And so we might say, Joel is a kind boy, is a good boy. Green leafy vegetables are healthy for you. They're good for you. We might say that milk in the fridge is still fresh. It's good to drink. We could say that Steve Sage is easily bribed with a Mr. Good bar. The the man has a very low price of cheap chocolate. (laughs) Each of those uh, senses of good has a, a, a different connotation depending on the context. Just because we don't see the word good in our English Bible in verse 28 and 29 doesn't mean that it's a poor translation. The Greek word good is agathos, and in verse 28 it's translated useful. Another translation um, is honest. Each word in the English explains what's good in contrast to stealing. When you steal, you're not being productive. When, you're, when you steal, you're, you're not showing yourself to be useful, uh, a contributor to society or your family. You're simply a leech, and when you steal, of course, you're not being honest. How do we apply Paul's instruction? Beyond the obvious no-nos of don't rob banks, don't embezzle funds from your company, don't put things into your pocket and walk out of Target and shoplift. Beyond the the obvious, how, how do we apply Paul's instruction here? Taking what's not yours might look like telling the ticket agent that your little girl is still two years old when she's actually three and a half. It might look like asking for a cup for water, but filling it with whatever you want that's a lot more tasty. Taking what's not yours might involve adding a few things to your expense report that were for personal use or claiming business deductions this time of year that aren't legit or taking home a a stack of sticky notes in those really expensive pens because you would never buy them yourself, from your office supply cabinet, and it does not matter at all that everyone else around you is doing it. It doesn't belong to you. Paul says, do good. Be honest. Make yourself useful. What, he, what he's saying here, we, we could also say is, start, uh, stop thinking about getting and start scheming about giving Stop thinking about getting, grabbing for yourself, and start scheming, strategizing, dreaming about ways of giving. Do good. Why? Here's the second key word that we see in each of these verses, so that, you may, so that you may have something to share with those in need, people who don't have, people who are lacking. In other letters, Paul echoes this idea He says at the end of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good, same word, to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And in Romans 12, verse 13, he says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. When Paul writes here in chapter 4, verse 28, Do something useful do something good with your hands, it echoes the very first command given by God to humanity at the very beginning of history, first page of the Bible, chapter 1, we find the cultural mandate. This is what Genesis one twenty eight says. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There to to take charge. They're to be stewards. They're to join with God as co-creators, not like God made everything out of nothing. We can't do that. It defies the laws of physics. But we take what God has already made, and we make something beautiful out of it. We imitate God, who is the master craftsman, the ultimate artist, gardener, teacher. We take what is good, and we make it something different, this is all driven by the first the two verses that precede the cultural mandate. Um, God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, being image bearing, humanity to reflect something of the glory of God, so that they may rule." So the image bearing has everything to do with this commanded do good, to be useful, productive, make something of the world. And so God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And then God said, Be fruitful, increase, rule, subdue. Which is really the foundation of what Paul saying here in Ephesians chapter 4. Be a co-creator. Be productive. Do good with creation. And in this way, First verse of chapter 4, you will live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Why is that more fundamentally? Because you will be reflecting something of the glory of God who created you in His image, and you will have something to share with those in need. Author and pastor John Piper describes three options about work. He says you can steal in order to get, you can work, to get for yourself, or you can work to get in order to give. And that last option is what Paul is challenging the Ephesians and us through the Scriptures to make the pattern of our lives. Who are those in need? It, it, it sounds like um, the question Jesus got, well, who is my neighbor? Who, who am I supposed to overflow to? Who, who, who do I have an obligation, a responsibility to? American philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff coined the phrase the quartet of the vulnerable to describe the four categories of needy people that are mentioned repeatedly throughout the Bible. The widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, and the poor. All four show up in this verse, for example, from Zechariah chapter 7. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. If you're ever wondering who are those in need, this is a great place to start by looking at the compassionate heart of God for the vulnerable in our society, just as true then as it is today. That leads us to verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful or good for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Unwholesome is a word that was also used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe rotten fruit, Luke chapter 6, and bad fish, Matthew chapter 13. You do not need culinary training to detect rotten fruit or a bad fish. If a two-year-old picked up either of them, He would be, without any training, be able to expertly make the face that is understood perfectly by any culture, any language. It goes like, (laughs) no pictures, please. (laughs) That's unwholesome. In the Greek, it's sapros. Do not let any talk come out of your mouths. It's rotten. It is corrupting. It is, why would a, a, a fish pulled out of the sea be bad? Well, it's either dead or it's dying. That's what our speech is like. And Paul says, don't do it. Watch your mouth. Obvious examples would include yelling insults at people, right? Four-letter words, cussing, outright gossiping. You wouldn't believe what so-and-so is up to and what they're like. Those are obvious, but... What Paul says, secondly, which we'll look at in a minute, raises the bar beyond the obvious, beyond just filthy language. I think unwholesome talk would also include saying things you don't really mean. Somebody says, you mad at me? No, I'm not mad. Not at all. We're cool. We're good. That's unwholesome. It leads to death. Death. It doesn't build up. I think unwholesome talk uh, would also include giving people a guilt trip. Those those little subtle things we inject into conversation to make the other person feel bad. Unwholesome talk looks like constant low level sarcasm, It, it involves always having to make light of serious things in life, cracking a joke. It, it involves making innuendo, whether sexual or otherwise, and, and, and maybe short of gossip, uh, in the guise of wanting to help somebody or pray for them, sharing how disappointed you are in this other person, you know, I, I thought I thought they were a little bit better than that. It, it might not feel like outright gossip, but it's unwholesome talk. Maybe hearing some of these examples makes you feel like, you know what, this I feel like this is getting legalistic, you know, do's and don'ts of the Christian life. But, but I caution you against that sort of allergy, this overreaction of the immune system to something that's generally good. I caution you against that because we need to keep in mind the context of how we got here, and it took three very densely packed chapters of Paul saying, this is who you are in Christ. This is what God has done for you. Chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You can't be do-gooders enough. You can't guard your speech and your tongue well enough to make yourself alive. No, but God, despite your condition, made you alive with Christ. Paul, Paul has been unpacking that painstakingly, and we have as well. We've spent months talking about that. To, to jump here is unnatural, but we've built up to get to where we are, to this level of depth, this kind of an, uh, specific instruction for holy living. This isn't legalism. This is Paul saying you need to, uh, this is not Paul saying you need to do these things and you need to do them well enough in order to win God's favor. Everything he has said before that uh, throws it out the window. That's not what he's saying. Um, What what Paul is doing right now is to help us see what it looks like to imitate the heart of God. What Paul is doing right now is to help help us understand what it looks like to live consistent with this new self, this new identity, not that we've manufactured, but that God has given to us. Christians are set apart. We are declared holy by God. God. And and that's our status. That's our identity, our position. And what Paul's simply doing is, now your practice should be consistent with that position, that identity. Live in light of it. And here's an example of how to demonstrate that holy status in real life. What what kind of unwholesome talk instinctively comes out of you? Each of us has sort of our... um, unique brand of sinful speech, the ways in which we tend to communicate in brokenness? What kind of unwholesome talk flows out of you? Jesus, the great physician, would diagnose that not as a mouth or tongue problem, but as heart disease. Jesus would say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your unwholesome talk is an issue, but uh, it's here, not here what's here Jesus' point his statement that has application in every part of our life points to the deeper issues of insecurity and pride and anxiety and fear and self-righteousness these are false identities that should not characterize Christ followers Paul's high standard I said is elevated with this next phrase he says speak only what is helpful or good, there's that key word, for building others up. That's the idea that we capture with the word edification. Now, that might strike you as churchy religious lingo. You know, I, I was so edified by that song. You know, people can overuse that. Whether, whether you dread that word or whether you really appreciate that word, that idea of building others up, edifying them, is the goal of good words, wholesome talk, if you will. In Sam Crabtree's book, Practicing Affirmation, uh, his last chapter is titled this, 100 Affirmation Ideas for Those Who Feel Stuck. And if you're like me, you turn that, to that last chapter, <laughs> chapter 9, and you're like, okay, I'm stuck. I need some ideas. And it's gold, this chapter. 100 ideas, down to earth at, Easily practiced action items to build people up with good words, not with flattery, not with lies and exaggeration and good stories, but with truthful, overflowing gospel grace. That points us to the further aim of good words. According to their needs, the second key word, that it may benefit, that's the Greek word for grace, that it may grace. Those who listen. Here's what Paul's saying Speak only words that are good for building others up according to their needs that they may experience grace. That leads us to hope for the hopeless. Why do I say that? What do I mean by this heading? I could start this way Are you a thief? It's not right. You're a respectable citizen. You wouldn't walk out with what doesn't belong to you. You wouldn't take from somebody else to benefit yourself. But Paul's positive command: the negative is don't steal. The positive command is do good, be useful, have something to share with those in need. Right? That, that, they, they go hand in hand. They're all part of verse twenty-eight. He would uh, I put it this way: dream how to give. Not just dream how to get. Some of the scariest words, in my opinion, that Jesus speaks are uh, just before he's arrested after the Last Supper. It's Matthew chapter 25, verse uh, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Starts off with a bang here. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So how are you doing on Ephesians 4:28? I'm not doing well. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this, "But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned." I don't know if you're like me. I don't really need to understand technically what empty words or non-empty words are. I just don't feel good about this. So how are you doing on Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29? The Apostle James adds this, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Yikes. What hope is there for hopeless sinners like us? who think of self far too much, who fail to reflect the giving, glorious heart of God, who all too often speak words that tear down rather than build up. What hope is there? Praise God. The heart of the gospel shows us that the King has done what we have failed to do. He's given us everything this is one way the apostle paul captures it in second corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich there's the gospel he's given us everything jesus had every right to to expect to get Because he was the divine and human son of God. He was the righteous and holy one of Israel. He had every reason to expect to get from everyone. And yet, in contrast, he came to give everything. Jesus who being in very nature God, Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The cross not being an accidental way of death, the cross being the deliberate plan of the Father to send the Son to the death of He did not deserve, but you and I, the hopeless ones, still deserve. And yet, in Christ, do not have to experience because we've been forgiven. Jesus not only spoke words of life, He is the word that brings life. What empowers you to live a holy life like Paul is unpacking in Ephesians 4, and next week we will get into Ephesians 5. What empowers you to live like this? Not trying harder. Not beating yourself up because you failed and then saying, tomorrow I'm going to be better. No. Y- you begin by profoundly realizing your failing, your sinful selfishness, your pattern of robbing God of glory, taking from what uh, does not belong to you. Your tendency to tear down rather than build up. You start with that profound awareness. And you feel even more hopeless. Somebody from the first service walked out and gave me a hug. uh, uh, And he said, I'm not feeling good right now. And I said, that's good. But you need to run to the cross where you will stand upon the rock, which is Christ. And you need to feel better about that. You start by realizing your failings. You, 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 not, you, don't, you don't marinate. You, you, you fully feel the effect of the hopelessness that your heart cannot do what it should do. And then, quickly, without delay, you look at and you trust in Jesus Christ, whose perfect life was lived in your place, whose substitute death was experienced in your place, whose resurrection from the dead is the triumph over sin and death in your place, promising you all the same that belongs to you now as you trust in Him. And then you ask yourself, why do you need to strive to get what you cannot obtain, satisfaction on your own, when you've been given what your Creator knows you most need and long for? When you realize you have Ephesians 1-3, every spiritual blessing in Christ already, then you have the capacity to overflow grace to others to do good, to meet their needs, and you will taste higher joys and deeper satisfaction as you reflect and imitate the very heart of God in whose image you were created. Let's pray. Lord, do not protect us from the ugly image in the mirror that should prompt us to think there is no hope for the hopeless. But let that only last a moment before we flee to Jesus, before we look at the cross of Calvary, before we put blinders on and realize that no other reality in the world in all of time and space matters more than the cross of Jesus Christ where our sins have been paid for, where death was provided for sin, and then let us see the empty tomb where sin and death are defeated and life is one. Thank you, Jesus, for being our righteousness. We praise you this day as your people. Amen.